The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. Look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn him because of this. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and among the lampstands, was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash round his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Sissy. Shall we bow our heads to pray? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open up this great book of Revelation to us this evening. 
and that you'd help us to understand what you're trying to tell us about our world and about your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, I don't know about you, but uh, frankly, I'm, I'm never particularly excited when I see the, the mail lying on the mat when I get home at the end of the day, because it's usually a collection of taxi cab cars, flyers from the local uh, Chinese restaurant, and uh, maybe a bill. Um, but there are occasionally times where my eyes sort of light up because it's a handwritten letter. Do you remember those? <laughs> In the days before email, we used to write letters to one another, and occasionally you still get a handwritten letter, and they're lovely to receive. Remember my daughter, uh, about three years ago, received not any old handwritten letter. It, was, it had the Buckingham Palace seal on the back. It said Buckingham Palace, and uh, she wasn't at home. We were all intrigued. It sat on the dresser for about a week. My niece, who was over from Australia, was convinced that it was a proposal of marriage from Prince Harry. Uh, she was wrong. Uh, I, think he, I think she was wrong. Um, but it was all very exciting to get this kind of personal handwritten letter. Now, I want you to imagine that you're living in first century Ephesus. Life is tough as a Christian because you face constant opposition for your faith. Your friends are being persecuted, killed even, and a letter arrives just for you and for your church. And the seal is not the royal seal of Buckingham Palace. It is the heavenly seal, because this is a letter from the Lord Jesus Christ, a handwritten letter written down by John for you from Jesus. And that is what the book of Revelation is. It's a letter from Jesus to the church. Now, as you know, that Re Revelation is the last book in the Bible. And as the name of the book suggests, something is going to be revealed. The word literally means that a, an enormous curtain is going to be drawn back. And just as when you're waiting at the, uh, the theater to see what's behind the curtain, so this is what's going to happen in the book of Revelation. Something wonderful is going to be revealed. The Greek word for revelation, uh, we get the word apocalypse from. And it's a word now widely used to describe the end of the world and disaster. And many people who know very little about the Bible and who know perhaps something about revelation, they think it's all about judgment and damnation and the beast, number 666, and they never actually get around to reading this glorious book, which is full of wonderful good news. Actually, if we're honest, I think probably many Christians have never really read the book of Revelation. Or perhaps we dip into it, the bits that we like. You know, we're perhaps familiar with um, you know, Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Or we think of uh, Revelation 19, which gives us the words of the Hallelujah Chorus from Handel's Messiah. He shall reign forever and ever, King of kings and Lord of lords. And we love singing that. Uh, or Revelation 21, a wonderful picture of the new Jerusalem, heaven, which is often read at funerals. In fact, I was chatting with a friend this week, and he said that uh, we often have our favorite go-to passages as Christians. 
Because although we believe that all scripture is inspired by God and all scripture is useful and profitable for teaching and so on, yet the reality is we go to our favourite books. don't know what you'd say your favourite books are, but perhaps I could ask you, when did you last read the book of Leviticus or Lamentations or Revelation? That's why I would strongly recommend that we all use some sort of systematic Bible reading scheme. Maybe Bible reading notes that over a five-year period will take you through the entire Bible. I know some, some use the Bible in a year thing where you have to read, I think it's four chapters a day, and you read the whole of the Bible and I think the Psalms twice. If you can't quite manage four chapters a day, you could do the Bible in a year in four years. Uh, And that's why we also preach systematically through the Bible here at St. Michael's, that we don't just go to our go-to books, our favorite passages, because, of course, you wouldn't get the full story. You'd just get our take on our favorite passages, and we'd probably stick in John's Gospel or Revelation 3.20 or something. So Revelation, it's a great book. It's deliberately placed by the people who put the Bible together at the very end of the Bible with its wonderful revelation or drawing back of the curtain to reveal Jesus in all his heavenly glory as he promises that he's going to return. We say it week by week, don't we, as we say the creed. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. And then we read a book that's uh, all about it here in Revelation. We think, well, that sounds a little bit funny. Now, we've just finished uh, the series in Malachi. If, you've, um, if you're new here, we, we've been preaching through little prophet Malachi. the last book in the Old Testament. And it concluded by looking ahead to the one who was coming, Jesus. And, of course, coming as a baby at Bethlehem and ultimately to be our saviour. And now we're looking at the last book of the New Testament, Revelation, and looking ahead to Jesus' second coming and the conclusion of human history, the arrival of the new heaven and the new earth, where Jesus shall reign forever and ever as King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah. But why is Jesus writing from heaven? Why does he reveal himself to John in this dramatic and sometimes, frankly, just it seems slightly bizarre fashion. So why is Jesus writing? Well, I think the first reason he's writing is that he's writing to them because something big must soon take place. Look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1. This is page 1233. Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. The last words of verse 3, because the time is near. Then over the page, verse 19, what will take place later. And Jesus writes to warn them, so they're ready for this something big that's going to happen. And rather like you might have the fire alarm going off at work as a kind of warning, get out of the building quick. So Revelation is a warning that something big is coming, so get ready. So what is going to happen and how soon? (laughs) 
Now, this is where people um, part company when they read the book of Revelation. And I'm, I wonder if this is one of the reasons why we're slightly wary of reading it, is that we're familiar with you know, people walking along Oxford Street with placards saying the end is nigh, um, and we think of them um, as you know, sort of crackpots and fruitcakes, and we think, well, that's not the kind of Christian I am. Very quickly, I just want to, to outline four big schools of interpretation as how people read Revelation. The first is what is sometimes called the pastist view. That is that the book of Revelation simply deals with events in the past, and particularly events that took place during the reign of Emperor Domitian. Domitian was an evil emperor who insisted that everyone called him Lord and God and that everyone must bow at his statue. And because the Christians refused to call him Lord and God, they were killed as a punishment. So if you take the pastist view, you you see that revelation is given to this, this church in a time of persecution to encourage them. Then there's the historicist view. This suggests that revelation is a continuous unfolding of history. So some Christians spend a lot of time interpreting history by reading Revelation. And they'll see in Revelation uh, big events in in world history, the rise of Islam, uh, the Roman Catholic, uh, uh, the Spanish Inquisition, uh, the Protestant Reformation, that kind of thing. And they use Revelation as a kind of code book for interpreting history. Then we come on to the futurist view, which says that all the events that are recorded in Revelation are going to take place in the future, and they will conclude time and history as we know it. And futurists try to decode Revelation not by reading history books, which is how the historicists do it. They interpret it with a newspaper, So they look in the newspaper and they see things happening and they say, yeah, this is what's going on. This is, you know, George Bush or it's Barack Obama or Osama bin Laden or whatever. The interesting thing is they always seem to reach the conclusion that the end times aren't just about now or just around the corner. So in the 1920s, it was Stalin In the 40s, it was Hitler. In the 90s, it was Saddam Hussein. And more recently, Osama bin Laden. If you're familiar with the uh, the Left Behind books that are very popular in the United States, they take the, the futurist view. The fourth view is the idealist or the figurative view, which sees Revelation not about particular times and events, but about the kind of events that are normal for all Christians for all time. So Revelation is about a struggle, suffering, and trials that Christians will experience whenever they live and wherever they live. And so the the idealist view says that Revelation gives us important lessons about the great victory of Jesus for all Christians for all times. 
Now you want to know where I'm coming from, don't you? <laughs> I think I would go for a combination of the pastist view and the idealist view. Because Revelation is partly written to these churches in the first century that were listed in verse 11. But it is also partly for all Christians for all time. And I think we can waste a lot of time speculating either about what happened in history or what is going to happen in the future. And Jesus tells us not to speculate about the future, that only the Father knows. So don't waste your time. However, the churches in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are real churches in real history. And they did receive a letter from Jesus. Not just chapters 2 and 3, but the whole book is a letter to these churches. And uh, if we could just have the next slide, that shows where these churches are. In case you thought it was a random collection of places. We're in eastern Turkey, what was called Asia. And John, um, John uh, who wrote this revelation down, is on the island of Patmos off the southwest coast. And he is in prison, as uh, verse 10 tells us, verse 9 tells us. And he's in prison because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And he's writing to these churches, which are sort of, sort of in a circle around the west, west side of what is now Turkey, leading churches of the day. But we miss the point if we think that Revelation is just for them. Because just as Luke's gospel was written to a chap called Theophilus, the Christian church throughout history has said, no, it's not just for Theophilus, it's for, for us too, today. And similarly, Paul writing to the Philippians or Colossians or whoever, it's not just for them, though it was for them originally, it's a letter for the church today. And in the same way, uh, its revelation is for these seven churches in Asia. But each letter ends, if you look at the end of um, the first letter to Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Not the church, but the churches. So he's writing to many churches. And this is not just a letter for Ephesus or Thyatira or Smyrna or whatever but it's a letter for St. Michael's, Chester Square too. It's a letter for All Souls Langham Place. It's a letter for Holy Trinity Brompton. It's a letter for St. Martin in the Fields. It's a letter for St. Paul's Cathedral. It's a letter for the whole church. So, people of St. Michael's, this is a letter for you this evening. Something big must soon play, take place. And the big thing, chapter 1, verse 7, is the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 7 says, Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. This is going to be an unmistakable return. There'll be no doubt that he's come back. Even those who pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. He's going to return. He's going to return in glory, and he's going to return in judgment. And it will be glory for those who are ready for him, and it will be judgment for those who aren't ready for him. 
Chapter 1, verse 1 says, this must soon take place. And almost the last verse of the whole Bible, chapter 22, verse 20, Jesus says, yes, I am coming soon. So the first thing that Jesus says and the last thing Jesus says in this book, the things that top and tail the book, are I am coming. So this is a letter to get us ready for that future day, whenever it's going to be. But the second reason um, that Jesus is writing is that this is a letter to help us face the present as well. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. This revelation from Jesus is given to John, who is an old man in exile on Patmos. Patmos, it's a a punishment island. It was where you were sent, rather like uh, Napoleon Bonaparte went to St. Helena, or Nelson Mandela was sent to Robin Island. John was sent to Patmos, he says, because of the word of God, his commitment to spreading that word, and the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he describes himself in verse 9 as a brother and companion in suffering, kingdom, and patient endurance. Now, if you had to describe your own Christian experience in three little phrases or words, I wonder how, how you do it. I think probably because we like to sort of appear that all is hunky-dory in our lives and say, your brother and companion in joy, in answered prayer, and in victory or something. I love the reality here that John says, yes, there is kingdom, the Christian life, there is great joy. It's wonderful to live the Christian life with Jesus as king and to be part of his family and to know that he is God and reigns supreme over all things. It's wonderful to know that nothing can separate us from the love of God. To be in his kingdom is great news. But chapter 1, verse 9, gives us a very important reality check. The Christian life is joy, but it also involves suffering, and it involves patient endurance. And I think that's one of the things that I love, particularly about the the senior saints, as we sometimes call them here at St. Michael's, and indeed other older Christians who I know from elsewhere. People who've been walking the Christian path for many, many years, maybe many decades, and they're still going strong in old age. And they've gone through difficult times. And they have experienced suffering. And they feel it very keenly, and bereavement may be. But their patient endurance is an absolute model for us to keep going. Jesus is coming soon, and if he was coming soon in the first century, he's certainly coming soon soon in the 21st century. Now, I find that many Christians are not particularly fussed about the second coming. In fact, again, they think it's perhaps the sort of, the talk about the second coming is the domain of the the crackpots and the, the fruitcakes. And they might say things like, yes, I know it's very nice to know that there's heaven when I die. That's a kind of great sort of eternal life insurance policy. But actually, I'm really enjoying life now. And it may be, um, you know, I've 
just got a promotion. I'm pleased, Jesus, don't come back right now. I've got the new job. Or I just got married. Or, you know, just bought a new house or something. Don't come back now, Jesus. You really spoil it all. Well, if we think like that, we've completely missed the point. Either about how wonderful heaven is or how much we need Jesus. Jesus can't come too soon for many Christians, both in the first century and in the 21st century around the world today. Please come quickly, would be their cry, because life is tough and the Christian life is tough. And whether it's Christians facing the persecution of the emperors Nero and Trajan and Domitian, or whether it's Christians being brutalized by ISIS today, we need to know that Jesus is coming, and Jesus is coming soon, and that the wait won't be too long. That's why John is writing this book, to encourage us to keep going when it's tough. But let's also notice who is doing the writing. Of course, John is just the secretary, and John gives us a brief glimpse of the Jesus who has given us this book. It's Jesus as you've never seen him before. Read with me from verse 10. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to these seven churches. Verse 12. I turned round to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like, the, like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, a picture of royalty. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, a picture of purity. And his eyes were like blazing fire, as John reminded us at the beginning of the service, piercing eyes that see right into our hearts. Do you remember that prayer that we sometimes say at the beginning of the communion service? Almighty God, from who, to, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid. That's the piercing, blazing eye of Jesus that can look into our hearts. Verse 15, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. This is like a waterfall. I was speaking this morning to someone who'd been to the Victoria Falls this week. You can hear it miles away, and when you get there, it is a roar. This isn't a babbling brook. This is a mighty roar. And Jesus is, uh, verse 16, in his right hand he held the seven stars. That's, that's the whole of creation, just holds in one hand. And out of his mouth came a sharp, double-edged sword. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. And then verse 17 over the page. When I saw him, I jumped to my feet, clapped my hands and said, Welcome, my friend. How lovely to see you. Nay. <laughs> when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He was terrified. Then he placed his right hand on me 
and said, Do not be afraid. It's a pretty awesome thing to see God in all his glory. Of course, in the Old Testament, if you looked at God, you'd die because he was so great. I don't know if you have a mental picture of Jesus, perhaps as you read the gospel stories or maybe as you pray, if you have a mental picture. For many years, my mental picture of Jesus was influenced by a picture I had in my bedroom as a child where Jesus was a sort of teenage shepherd boy with little lambs in his arms, stroking them. It's pretty inoffensive, isn't it? Some people have an image of Jesus like the picture from um, Holman Hunt's painting of Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And there's Jesus knocking on the door with a rather sorry expression on his face. Um, He can't uh, let himself in because the handle's on the inside. And it looks looks rather sad, really. Won't anyone let me in? Rather apologetic. That's not the picture we've got here, is it? It's altogether different. When John sees Jesus in all his glory, he falls at his feet as though dead. This, is, this vision is sensory overload. But much more than that, he falls at his feet as though dead because John realizes who this figure is. In Daniel chapter 7, it refers to one like the Son of Man. I think it's going to come up on the screen The Ancient of Days takes his seat on the throne. This is God. Capital A, capital D is the clue that that's God. He's there from all time, through all time. That's why he's called the Ancient of Days. And there, that's a familiar description, isn't it? His clothing was as white as snow. His hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire. Its wheels were all ablaze. And then it says, he approached the Ancient of Days. One like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days. So the one like the son of man approached God. And he was given authority, glory and sovereign power and so on. But Revelation 1 tells us that Jesus has all the attributes of the ancient of days himself. So when Jesus appears, as he appeared to John in this vision he won't be John's old fishing mates from their days in Galilee together he won't be his friend he will be appearing in glory awesome majestic powerful the king of kings and lord of lords it's good just to be reminded what a great God the Lord Jesus Christ is and perhaps recalibrate our view of Jesus. Just let's notice, though, the Jesus who is speaking to his church. First, he has a voice like a trumpet, verse 10. It roars like a waterfall, verse 15. I think that means that when Jesus speaks, we're meant to listen. His voice should drown out all other voices. Jesus is speaking to his church. But Jesus is also walking with his church, verse 13. Jesus is among the lampstands. And we saw in verse 20 that the lampstands are the churches. So Jesus is walking amongst the churches. 
Jesus is with us. Jesus is the Lord of glory. He's the one who can make us tremble and fall at his feet, but he is also the one who walks with his church. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He's the one who said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He's the one who said, I'm with you always to the close of the age. He's with his church, as here with John and the seven churches, through their suffering, through their pain, through their confusion, perhaps through their questioning and through their anger, Jesus is walking with his church. But Jesus isn't just the one who speaks to his church like thunder, so sit up and listen. He's not just the one who walks with his church and with us through all our struggles. He's also the one who strengthens his church. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And then over the page, verse 18, I am the living one, I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He was there at the beginning, he's going to be there at the end, and he's with us now. He's the Lord Almighty, he's the Sovereign One. And he holds the keys of death and Hades, He's risen from the dead and he's now alive. And as it were, he unlocked himself to get out of jail, the jail of death and hell. He's conquered our greatest fear. There's no greater fear than the fear of death. And he holds the keys. That means he's in charge. This is our God, the conquering King Jesus. And he says to us, as he says to the seven churches, do not be afraid. Because this awesome, holy, almighty God, he speaks to us. That is a wonderful thing, isn't it? When you're doing your Bible in a year or your Bible reading notes and you're half awake because it's uh, quarter past six and you're trying to get to Burning Man or the Breakfast Club or whatever it is, you think, really, what's in this for me? It's the living God speaking to us, the risen Lord Jesus, the one who has the keys, speaking to us today. He walks with us through all our suffering and our sorrow and our hardships and the difficulties. He knows about the, the, un, the um, uncompromising boss. He knows about the difficult situation with the flatmate. He knows about my problems at home. He walks with us. He'll never leave us. And he strengthens us. He knows it's tough, but he's coming soon. He was dead, but he's now alive. And here is this letter to the seven churches and to us today. So anyone who has an ear, let them hear over the next few weeks what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy 
and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it because the time is near. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are the risen one, the one who holds the keys, that you're sovereign, that you are this wonderful picture of the almighty God and that you still speak to us. You still walk with us. You still strengthen us. Please help us as we read this book, which can sometimes be challenging. Help us to see your love written all over it. Help us to take heart to what is written in it, because the time is near. Help us to be ready for your glorious return. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.